Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 60. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, we're going to talk about identifying opportunities. Or at least, I think that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah, like sometimes I, I wonder, like, if you had one shot, one <laughs> opportunity. You know, what's funny is that song came on while we were in the car the other day, and my daughter was in the car. and <laughs> She got I, hyped. <laughs> she did get pretty hyped. Uh, it, it's interesting, the music that three-year-olds will get into like i don't know about your kids but mine always wants to hear the same song over and oh, over yeah. again it's like she'll find the one song that annoys me the most <laughs> and fall in love with that song and she just wants it on loop in the background all hours of the day is eminem one of those songs i think it might be now i mean i can annoys everyone now I, I can live with it if it's eminem right now it's this song called she's kerosene by the interrupters and i've heard that song probably about a thousand times in the last two weeks and i want to kill myself can you sing it it's you know what's weird is like it's so ingrained in my conscious right now i don't even remember the lyrics to it it's something about how like this girl is like i don't know volatile and flammable and it's not what i would consider a good song but i guess it's got a lot of like thump to it so it's good yeah. for a three-year-old so um going beyond three-year-old strategy let's talk about jujitsu strategy so last week we talked about passivity and this week what we're talking about is a continuation of that. With passivity, the problem that you generally have is you just can't bring yourself to pull the trigger. You know, you, you're just always on the defense. You're always reactive. You're letting your opponent dictate the pace for you. But let's say that after last week's episode, you have now been inspired and you have decided that you are just going to be an aggressive monster going forward and you're going to take every opportunity that's given to you and make the most of it. The question then becomes, and I, I mean, I think as maybe black belts, we take this for granted, but the question becomes, what is an opportunity in the context of jujitsu? Like, how do you know when someone is giving you an opportunity? Now, you probably can explain this pretty well and i probably could as well but if you're a white belt or even a blue belt you might not really be thinking about things in this way you know i remember when i was at that belt rank i was not thinking about you know what opportunities were in front of me i was just thinking i want to scissor sweep from here or i want to bump sweep from here i didn't really have enough of a cohesive strategy in my head to be able to talk about opportunities so what we wanted to do here was discuss this a little bit and give some guidance as to how to tell when an opportunity is presenting itself in front of you and when and how you should take it. And also at that at that rank when you're white and blue, well, hopefully not blue, but at white, a lot of the time you're also worried about uh, 
not being too spazzy. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of conflicted because you want to do stuff, but you don't really know what you're doing. And if you do stuff too hard, people start complaining and you become known as the spazzy dude (laughs) or the really strong dude. Yeah, that is is not fun. That's one of my favorite backhanded jujitsu compliments. Like, wow, you're really strong or wow, you're really heavy. You know, you're really heavy is one of those things that you are actually to roll with. Only in the context of jujitsu is that something that someone says in a complimentary way. It's like, wow, have you gained weight? You feel so heavy. <laughs> Only in jujitsu would someone say, yeah. thank you. I really appreciate <laughs> yeah. you calling me a fat ass. Yeah. Um, but and funny yeah. enough in jujitsu, I want to be smaller, whereas most men want to be bigger. Yeah, I know. More muscle. I want to lose muscle. It's the, the paradox of jujitsu. Get Jocko to talk about it. one of his dichotomies or his paradoxes or something. But no, that's a, something. <laughs> uh, we love Jocko. But that that's a good point because when you're talking about the spazzy white belt, normally what that is, is it is an aggressive person who is not seeking opportunities. They're just being aggressive. They are not picking active. Yeah. They're not picking their shots. They're not trying to make the most out of every opportunity. They are just throwing caution to the wind and gunning it. Right. Um, where you get refined is where you take that aggression and and that assertiveness and you temper that by finding opportunities and making the most of them. So the way that I think you can best explain what an opportunity is in the context of jujitsu most of the time it's a lever, right? Uh, the core mechanics of jujitsu are frames, wedges, and levers. In the context of wanting to exploit an opportunity, you are usually looking for a lever. That means that you want to grab someone's arm, you want to grab someone's leg, you want to grab their head, or if it's gi, there are certain variants of lapel or collar yeah. or sleeve or pant leg grips or the belt that you can grab. Basically, you want a handle that you yeah. can use to get outsize leverage on your opponent. Uh, you don't want to just try to body lock them and throw them or just like, you know, just like play wrestle them. You basically want to have a lever that you can exploit. And most of identifying opportunities is figuring out where is the lever here mm-hmm. and seeing if your opponent is leaving anything dangling that you can grab. Yeah, I was going to, before you said, uh, t- start talking about the gi and proxy control, I was going to start talking, I was going to say a lever or a grip. You know, if you're, if you're uh, actively grappling and you're not really looking for grips or fighting for grips, then you're basically being reactive, I guess, by definition. You're, mm-hmm. you're playing a game where you're preparing to frame and you could be really good at guard retention, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to ever get ahead in the fight, you know? So actively grip fighting and I, um, and like you said, looking to exploit levers is a, a huge part of it. But I think I think really um, the the true cure for passivity is fighting with purpose. Essentially, if you can fight with purpose um, and have and have specific goals in mind, millisecond by millisecond as the match goes on, that basically adds up. Just like in life, how you know we we talk about not setting long-term goals but setting uh creating good habits and and making smaller steps in order to achieve a bigger goal this is sort of kind of what we're looking for so it's the it's the second by second decisions um that need to be you know thought about and acted upon very quickly and doing things with purpose like gripping off balancing redirecting creating angles you know, Kazushi, all that stuff. That's what I think really is the antidote for a overly passive practitioner. Yeah, 100%. I mean, if you are letting the other guy manage the grip fight, then you're never going to get that lever. If the whole idea of an opportunity is to get a lever, 
but your opponent is always dominating the grip fight, you're just not going to get one. And you're always going to be the guy who has to respond to what the other person is doing. So a big part of taking the initiative is to just be really assertive with grip management. And the way that I like to think of it is, you know, as soon as someone grabs you, you need to address that right away. A few different ways you can do it. You know, you can circle your hand around if it's your hand that he's grabbing. Um, you can change the, you can break the grip. You can change the angle of, of your body such that the grip is no longer useful. You can invert the grip. Like you can kind of regrip and get a grip on the inside. There's a lot of ways that you can do it. Sure. But, but really, if as long as you are just sitting there and allowing your opponent to get dominant grips on you, then there are not going to be many opportunities that come your yeah, way. You're going to be behind always. Yeah, yeah. You're so lose the tempo. Exactly. Exactly. But that's a good point too about training with purpose. You know, when you're in there in a a sparring match or in a competition, if you don't know what it is that you want to do and you just want to go in and kind of freestyle it and just like let life happen. (laughs) Which I did for the majority of my journey. Yeah, yeah. It's probably not going to work out that well for you simply because by going through the ac- the exercise of thinking about the game plan, your opponent is going to probably have loaded up in their head many more ideas about what to do. I don't, I don't know that it's not going to work well a, a lot of the time. I think it could, like if you have a lot of skills and you just want to go in there and freestyle, it can work well a lot of the time. Like you mm-hmm. could you could be rolling with some high level guys and, and doing be doing well. But I think where you're going to run into issues is when you're... Uh, training or competing against people who are very serious, very mm-hmm. high level, um, or or if you're you're training, preparing for a competition, that's when people are really going to start fighting with purpose against you. And if you lose those grip battles, then you're basically putting yourself a step behind. So, you know, in terms of fighting with purpose, I've been, I feel like a broken record. I've been saying it uh, over and over again on these podcasts and as well with my students, but just learning the rules and understanding the rules is for me almost a direct there's a direct correlation with understanding the rules and having purpose in your jujitsu because that will really tell you like okay should i come up now should i try and sweep now you know do i do i sweep from this position or do i get a better position so that i can score when i sweep it really breaks down this the moment by moment decisions and i feel like that is one of the best answers for overly passive people yeah not necessarily getting them pissed off and making them mad and grapple. That's not really the answer. I think it's more of an intellectual thing, you know, giving them the actual goals that they need rather than the, uh, the aggression part. Well, that's a good point because jujitsu is about more than just trying to get your grips. Ultimately you're trying to win and how you win depends on the rule set that you're under. We've talked about this before, but it's probably time to introduce this concept formally, win conditions. It's a powerful mental model. When you're engaged in any endeavor, one of the mistakes that a lot of people make is they just kind of show up and do their best. But in any game that you play, whether it's something like jujitsu or it's, you know, a job, you know, you need to know what the measurable objective way to win is. And you need to really think about that. Yeah. Win conditions are critical because like in the context of jujitsu, the the rule set that you're under makes a dramatic, dramatic difference in terms of what kind of strategies you may want to oh, employ. Sure. And beyond that, the context of whether you're competing or training also makes a big difference as well too, right? You're going to have different goals in each situation you're going to have different levels of intensity so a big part of identifying how to how to find and exploit opportunities is knowing well what are the win conditions what are the things that that need to happen in order for me to be the victor here and if you know those things then you can work back and reverse engineer victory 
Yeah, especially like, you know, if you never think about the points and you're in the gym, then there's a good chance you're going to do things like uh, concede sweeps without mm-hmm. even fighting back or you're going to go for submissions from the top position and give up bottom position easily and not even think anything up anything of it right mm-hmm. now that doesn't necessarily mean that you're being passive in fact it could be quite the opposite if you're going for like yeah. rolling kimuras and toe holds yeah. and things like that but it means you may not be optimal under the conditions of the game exactly right like if it's sub only if you're training for the ebi first of all i'd recommend that maybe 75 percent of your training is overtime um, because your jujitsu should already be there if you're going to be competing in an EBI tournament, uh, since there is no real rules to the actual regulation, most of the matches I think can be, are, are going to be going to overtime. So focusing on overtime would be more important, I think, than just focusing on regular jujitsu mm-hmm. training. Um, because that's really where those matches are won and lost and you can go for weird moves. You, it doesn't matter if you get swept it might make sense to get swept in certain scenarios, right? But it, but in the, under the majority of jiu-jitsu competitions where there's points on the line, it does matter if you're getting swept. So, you know, it's it's really important to learn the rules and then to live practice with the rules in mind. Yeah, and the rules for accumulating points are so critical to employ properly. You know, this is something that's been brought up to me because, of course, not competing. I don't really think about points that much. But, you know, a lot of the time someone will go for a takedown and they'll try to pass right away to side control. But the problem is if you bypass the guard, you bypass a massive point scoring opportunity, right? Instead of getting five points, you might wind up with two. So, so much of high level strategy involves not pulling the trigger too quickly. You know, making sure that you do a pit stop in guard and then pass and collect the points. But the question then becomes, how do you do that? without letting your opponent establish guard to the point where they can actually recover it properly. You know, you want to basically have them attempt a guard that you can then easily defeat. So this kind of extra level of strategy requires you to really, really understand the rules of the game. And so much of success in life is understanding the rules of the game. I mean, man, like you ever talk to like a lawyer or a tax accountant, like just understanding how the law works and how taxes work can make a massive difference to how far you get in life. You could do basically everything else exactly the same, but the way that you play the game at this level can make massive, massive differences. And of course, in jujitsu, it is very much the same. It is often the case that uh, a lot of the time, the theoretically better person doesn't actually win. I mean, one of my favorite matches of all time was uh, the Mackenzie Dern Gabby Garcia match where Mackenzie won. Now, if you were to show that match to a lay person, nobody would look at that and say, oh, Mackenzie won, right? Like people who don't know jujitsu and even a lot of people who do know jujitsu would probably watch that and think it's this tiny woman just getting manhandled, woman handled in, in this case by this much larger one. But under the the rules that are being played, you know, there are things like advantages and penalties that you have to worry about. And under those rules, Mackenzie Dern won. So it's interesting how a lot of the time it's not about who's bigger and who's badder, but it's about who knows how to play the game better. Oh, totally. And this is, this just echoes pretty much everything I've been saying for the, basically since I started refereeing a few months ago. And yeah, if, if you're, if you are training, first of all, if you're a competitor and you don't have a, a firm grasp on the understanding of the rules, and I even want to go as far to say that you're not updating yourself constantly on the rules and re, you know, rebolstering those, the concepts of the rules in your head, then you're probably doing yourself a disservice as a competitor. And if you're an instructor and you want to have competitors at your school, it's really important that you start to incorporate those rule sets into the, uh, the training. And it's fun. Like I, 
ever since I started doing these mock matches in my comp classes, I've got guys coming up to me. They're like, Hey, I don't even like really want to compete, but I, I think I want a referee. Like that's kind mm-hmm. of a fun thing because it's such a mental, um, battle. And I find that, that, uh, you know, putting yourself through the stresses of refereeing and understanding when the points happen, where, where you can get points, where you can deny your part, uh, your training partner points, this, a lot of it takes the guesswork out of competition because mm-hmm. in competition, sometimes if you like, I, I take it from me, I've competed many times without understanding the rules fully. Like I'll fully admit that up until Brown Belt, I was going out there and banging and that was my strategy. Um, and I, I didn't even know a lot of the rules. And then, you know, I sort of studied them. I'm like, wow, I really didn't even know this game. Now that I understand where I can and can't score, it just makes my, my decisions much more sharp which they have to be as the ranks go up and up. And it, it takes a lot of the panic and guesswork out of what should I do next? It's like, I know what I should do next. I know that this is where they're going to score and I know what I need to do to deny them the score and so on, so on. So, um, yeah, I, I can't, I can't stress enough. Even if, you know, even if you're one of those people that hates the point system, you know, once you start studying them and using them, you might not hate them so much. It's actually, it's actually kind of a fun way to train and you'll, your jujitsu will definitely become sharper from it. Yeah. A lot of people criticize the point system and it's not, I used to too. Usually when I lose a tournament, I (laughs) hate the points. Well, it's not, it's not a perfect system, but in my opinion, it's actually pretty good. Like the, the goal of a system in a martial art should be, in my opinion, to, allow safe competition in such a way that still reflects the true origins of the art, right? What you don't want is a situation where your point system diverges to the point where people aren't even trying to do realistic martial arts anymore. They're trying to play to the point system. What you want is a point system that if people follow, they'll still be competent grapplers, right? Ideally, the point game should not be so different from the actual martial art itself that it's, and this is, of course, the common argument from self-defense people is, oh, well, you guys are competition people. You don't know how how to really fight for the streets. I mean, come on. You know, anyone who is like a high level competitive grappler under the IBJJF system is going to know how to handle themselves simply because the IBJJF point system is still pretty good at accurately reflecting how to fight now there are things i'd like to change you know we've talked in the past about things like leg reaping and stuff and heel hooks i would much much prefer if these things were just opened up but other than that it's actually a pretty good way to score and measure a fight like i think it's much better than like the the unified mma rules which are a total joke a lot of the time right the ibjjf rules i think do a pretty good job so even if you are focused on the point system you'll still wind up being a pretty good like self-defense grappler at the end of the day you know it's not it's not going to weaken you to focus on the point system so if at any point you are concerned about this and you think oh i don't want to focus too much on the like focusing on the points will actually make you a lot better at the end of the day it just gives you an objective way to measure your progress in a you know in an actual safe training environment i can just hear the haters now oh steve thinks that the that guard pulling is a good self-defense thing well honestly honestly (laughs) i am not against guard pulling for self-defense if you well well like hear me out it could totally work it could i i know people sushi like i I know people who have done this in self-defense and won like it does it can work now what you don't want to do is you know like just butt butt scoot (laughs) what you don't want to do is just like fall to the ground and grab the guy and try and hold him there but if your game is to like immediately go right into guard and sweep and submit immediately and aggressively that will totally work like if you know how to if you know how to get on top and 
get past the legs and like, you know, you're basically racking up points and, and these positions, it, you know, the, the, the point system is, is based off of positional, uh, jujitsu and bringing you to more dominant positions where you can land more strikes and do more attacks. So it, it does make total sense. Yeah. We're not saying to pull guard in a street fight, but you know, usually if you're a grappler, we're not, we're assuming you have a takedown in your arsenal too, or maybe <laughs> that's not maybe a not a great assumption. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, Maybe not if you're under 150 pounds. <laughs> yeah, well, that's one situation where guard pulling is viable, right? I mean, if you're fighting someone who is a lot bigger than you, I would not advise, unless you're just a phenom wrestler, I would not advise you to attempt a double on someone who you're giving up 100 pounds to, right? Sure. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, like and, if you could get if you can get underneath someone and elevate them and make them post, you have a good chance of getting on top. Or, exactly. Or getting a leg entanglement or something. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think this is a situation where, you know, people criticize guard pullers and all of that. But I think that the IBJJF rule set does a pretty good job of creating an environment where you're teaching people good combat and again like to your point i think that you'll learn a lot from kind of familiarizing yourself with that system one thing that i have learned for is you know when you are sparring it's a good idea to sort of mentally debrief and score your roles after the fact because there have been a lot of days where i've you know i get on the mat and i'm rolling with someone and i feel like i just get clobbered but then afterwards i think about it and i think actually i think i won by an advantage (laughs) it makes a big difference because under the rule set sometimes you didn't do as bad as you think you did like i know that if someone like gets mount on you and just sits there and you can't move them for two minutes it can feel terrible it really feels like you got your ass kicked but if you actually think it through and count up the points you might find out you know what i i actually won that uh, and that's an important mindset to have is to be constantly aware of the actual point score and what you have to do to, to regain the lead if you lose it yeah the after each round sort of thinking about what went right what went wrong we do it pretty much after every mock match at my schools. We debrief and talk about it. Was there any questions that came up? You know, anybody have any concerns about the rules or they weren't aware what happened? Or And then usually the refs that we have, at, the, at I'm calling them refs. They're actually just my students who are learning basically how to ref. Talk to them and see, is there anything weird that happened that you don't know about? And then we all try and go from there and do our best. And I think that's how people should be kind of handling their day-to-day training anyways thinking mm-hmm. making small goals at the beginning of class you know maybe you're trying out a new guard or you know you want to you don't want to get past or whatever and then at the end of class you think well okay i did this right i did this wrong uh you know i could have done this better and then from there you have sort of a a, jer- a plan of action moving forward whereas if you're just going to class showing up and not thinking about anything and then you go home and just next class you just go in and just roll and then you never think about anything you're of course you're going to plateau you're not going to progress at the rate that you could and i think that happens to a lot of people yeah and i think you know i think the reason why is because for a lot of people jujitsu is a hobby and it's therapeutic you know one thing that people always say is i love going to jujitsu because i can just kind of turn my brain off you know i can forget whatever happened during the day and i can just kind of live in the moment and that's all awesome and very zen and i i definitely encourage that but i don't suggest that you turn your brain off to the point where you're not analyzing what you're doing like i really think that before if you're getting like swept all over the place or yeah yeah you know you want to play guard but then you're trained the guy you're training with pulls guard on you first like that type of stuff you know you're not really getting to your position that you want so then focus your guard pull just like you were focusing on takedown sorry i didn't mean to interrupt no 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 makes sense yeah i really think that 
it is a good idea before and after every class to set a plan and then kind of debrief and analyze how you did. You know, think think about the roles you had, mentally score them. Because to your point earlier, you might not have done as poorly as you thought you did, you know, and, and also it gives you an idea of how you could improve for the next time around, you know, understanding whether you had any point scoring opportunities that maybe you missed or that you neglected. That kind of stuff is important to reflect on because that's how you build good habits and change your behavior is you have to stop and consciously analyze what you're doing rather than just kind of doing things over and over again without thinking. Yeah. And also in terms of identifying these opportunities, a big part of that is the predictable reactions mental model that Mm -hmm. we talk about all the time. One of the most, basically the jujitsu mapping that goes on when you're going through your journey and you're sort of figuring out, okay, well, if I go for this attack, my partner is going to do this, or he has, I've seen my partner do, you know, X, Y, and Z reactions to this attack. So therefore I can expect that future partners will probably do those reactions. Let's have game plans for those reactions. So exactly. sort of understanding those predictable reactions and then making them second nature is also a huge part of being able to be successful when acting upon opportunities and seeing them. Yeah, a lot of the time it's not the opportunity in front of you right away that's really valuable. It's what you can do as a secondary action once you've, attack the first opportunity so what i mean by that for example is a lot of the time you attempt a sweep or a submission doesn't work but if you immediately chain that into a follow-up attack you may have created enough momentum and enough of an off balancing that you can then have a much more successful attempt at the second attack you know that that's a just a general strategy is that if you were just constantly attacking your opponent it makes it far more likely that they're going to make a mistake so i always advise to people to be chaining these techniques um just because you attack an opportunity and it doesn't work out that doesn't mean you you stop there and you give up there use that opening to see if there's any other follow-up opportunities that you can exploit Uh, you know it's the same in like any other walk of life right a lot of the time you you try something and your first attempt doesn't work and so you adjust and you try something a little bit different and then eventually you have success it's the same in jujitsu you know if you just try an arm bar that might not be enough but it might create a window for a pendulum sweep or something else the mistake that a lot of beginners make or people who are not necessarily confident is they'll try an attack and it won't work and they'll just reset and go back to guard or wherever they were and then they'll try a different attack and it won't work but i i have found that the people who really give me trouble when i'm sparring with them is they will give me no respite between their attacks they will attempt something and then they will immediately transition into something else with like not a second of hesitation so mm-hmm. that's actually the best time to exploit an opportunity is when your opponent is already off balance from your last attack yeah chaining attacks together is also a huge way to essentially create opportunities but uh, mm-hmm. but uh, you know just keep um, and, and I'm trying a big thing is trying to create uh, chained attacks without it, uh, fatiguing yourself. Yeah, I yeah. find sometimes when you go for a string of attacks, if you put so much emotion or effort into every attack, then your gas is going to drain big time. I think a lot of the time is. Uh, when I'm chaining attacks together, I'm almost just trying to keep my opponent busy, mm-hmm. uh, keep them moving and keep them defending. And then when I see an att- uh, when I see a reaction that I like, then you can strike and actually attempt. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to go a hundred percent hard on everything. Like, especially I think for loose passing, when you're standing on the feet, you know, the type of uh, leg drags or Toriando style passes, you're never going to hit those passes on the first time. It's never going to work. So I think if you, you know, I've seen a lot of people try and do that, those types of passes, and then they go for one or two 
types of passes and then all of a sudden they're exhausted because they expected to get that pass the first time or they they tried so hard to get in and then they weren't expected for they weren't expecting a, a suitable defense from their partner and so they sort of get uh, morally defeated and then they lose gas whereas if you're on top and you just keep your partner you know, constantly framing and you're changing angles and ranges and stuff like that. I think it's a lot more, uh, you, you find, you create more breakthroughs that way. Anyways, if you don't fully commit to each pass, but you just, you know, keep peppering those passes and not let your partner get a a moment's rest. That's a good point that a lot of the time people kind of, they, they shoot their shot and then they've burned so much energy on that both physically and sometimes emotionally that they just can't bring up a a separate second attack but what you need to do is make sure that you conserve your energy and also leave yourself openings to transition to something else this is something that i've tried to adapt into my game i won't just put everything i've got into a technique unless i am just absolutely confident it's going to work but i will not try to will something into existence right if i attempt something and i get to that point where i realize this isn't going to work. I will use that opportunity to transition to something else and to keep my opponent moving. But the trick is at every one of these stages, you don't want to burn too much energy, um, both physically and (laughs) mentally, right? Because it can be very, very mentally exhausting as well. If you put everything you've got into a technique and it still doesn't work. Yeah. And like you said, at the beginning of the podcast, just identifying like, uh, free levers just dangling or whatever if if someone comes in on a like a high crotch on you and then you sprawl you could very easily trap them in a crucifix if they still have their arm in there right and and part of it is understanding that hey there's a lever there there's the end of the lever if i just switch my hips i could totally have that arm trapped and then i'm I'm starting to go for like a, a some form of back control right so you know, understanding understanding where these these little transitions are, where you can catch the end of a lever, or where you can dominate a grip, is is really important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And something else that you mentioned there too that we might want to specifically codify: whenever you are attacking an opportunity, you have to do a risk versus reward analysis on it. I mean, a lot of people call this return on investment. (laughs) Basically, the question is, what am I putting into this and what am I getting out of this? Mm -hmm. The mistake that a lot of rookies make is they put everything into a move that they just have no chance of getting. And a lot of beginners, unfortunately, don't know when they have no chance of getting something. I mean, I see this all the time where I'll be sparring with some white belt and they'll like, I don't know, grab onto someone's arm or their head and they'll just reef with everything they've got and they have no chance of getting it. And then they're not only are they exhausted, but because they are so focused on attacking that opportunity, they're usually leaving themselves open to a pass or to something else. Right. I mean, a a perfect example that I can think of is the, the sacrifice choke, you know, when you're about to pass someone's guard and they try to do basically baseball choke. Yeah. They basically try to do a call, like a baseball collar choke on you from the bottom. Like, it I blew up my shoulder doing that. Yeah, that choke works. I mean, I've been like choked almost unconscious do it because someone did that choke to me. But the reality is against an experienced opponent, they're going to know that you're trying to do that if you grab their collar and they can exploit that really, really easily. Like it is so easy to turn the, the that sacrifice choke into a bad, bad scenario for the person doing it as you just attested to. So whenever you're attacking any kind of opportunity, Always ask yourself, like, what is the effort I've got to put into this and what is the possible gain coming out of this? Like both in terms of the the probability of it actually happening and how much it's actually going to be worth to me. Yeah, like in terms of decision making, if someone passes your guard and you're and I see it all the time. 
especially students that come from other gyms, a lot of them will come out and they'll get their guard passed and then they'll go for a submission from like a bottom side yep. rather than focusing on their guard retention, which is kind of our main thing, right? Like yeah. if someone, someone gets to stage three, regard until you can get it back to stage two or one, right? And, and it just totally goes against the rules. So, you know, I'm not going to say don't go for baseball bat chokes. They can work, but at the same time, there's kind of an order of operations or, mm-hmm. or, or like you said, a risk first reward thing. Like I, there's, there's kind of a hierarchy of needs in my mind when I'm rolling and at the top is maintaining guard and then getting submissions is somewhere near the end. Once I've, you know, trapped my opponent and broken them lots of their alignment, then yeah, I'm going to yeah. start looking for submissions, not trying to catch someone from a, like a baseball bat. Show. It's, just, it's just like if someone passes my guard and, I have a really good reversal from bottom side control that lands me in top side control. But if I do that in a tournament, I literally get nothing for yes. it. And then what happens, my partner regards and now he's in like a good scoring position and you know, I'm on top. Yeah. So that, I, that's a great I, example. Like to get paid, right? I'd yeah. like to get my points for that. But, but if I, if I really like my bridging reversal from side, bottom side to top side, you don't get anything for it. That's a really good example because the intuitive answer, which seems so obvious, which is I can just do my escape and get out, is not actually the best investment if you're talking about a point scenario. So you've got to think under this scenario. I mean, if this were a street fight, of course you want to get out from under there. But if this is a tournament, that might not be in your best interests. Yeah. It may be better to try to regard because then you can actually start to rack up points. Um, that's a, a really, really, really smart point and something that I think everyone needs to be aware of in the context of uh, when you're actually trying to win a match, especially one under a particular point system. The concept return on investment obviously comes from in investing, right? And this is a mistake that a lot of rookie investors make is they'll say, they'll see a company that they really like, like, I don't know, Amazon, right? Maybe a company that's doing really well. And they think this company just can't lose. It's such a great company. I'm going to buy a whole bunch of this, this stock. Well, the problem is if the company is overpriced and you're buying it, what is your return on investment going to be? Like if it's already overpriced and the current price already cannot be justified, then you're ripping yourself off, right? Like an example would be if I really want a, I don't know, a, a Mazda three for whatever reason. And, um, I go to a, you know, I go to a dealer and they're offering me one for like $60,000. If I don't think critically for a second and realize like, hold on, that's like two or three times the market price. (laughs) You know, it doesn't matter if I want it. It doesn't matter if it's actually a good, reliable car. I need to do a return on investment analysis. And it's exactly the same in jujitsu. Now we talked previously about frugality and how important that is. And really what a lot of that means is just understanding the return on investment of everything like not even just doing a move but simple things like when i extend my hand and try to grab your collar what is the risk and what is the possible reward you know Mm -hmm. if i leave my leg in front of me what is the risk versus what is the reward um i think actually really the the only thing that makes a high level grappler at the end of the day is that they know the risk versus reward of almost anything that can happen to their body Mm -hmm. and anything that can happen to the other person's body whereas i think most junior people are oblivious to that they don't they don't think about that like there are so many times when i'm sparring with someone and i just like 
effortlessly sweep them and wind up on top. And they're like, how did you do that? That was witchcraft. And I tell them, it's like, literally all I did was you left your foot sticking out. And so I grabbed it and sat up. That's all I did. Like, I did not do some magical sweep. It's you put your foot in front of me. So I took it. (laughs) And I mean, we should, we should probably be talking more about real life scenarios, not just jujitsu in terms of identifying opportunities, because like the risk versus reward concept is everywhere in life Mm -hmm. like for example um you know this is my second or third location now that i've been through um not locations like in terms of that's how many gyms i've opened but i've had to jump ship a few Mm -hmm. times and we finally got our own space and now i'm getting like a decent amount of students and i'm thinking oh like maybe soon maybe soon it'll be time to get a nice big space or whatever But, and it seems like a great idea because things are going great and, you know, Jim's doing well and, you know, I'd really like to get some more mat space now and have like a new space. But then I actually think about the logistics of it. I think about, okay, well, if I get a bigger space, I'm probably going to triple my rent. Mm -hmm. So right then and there, that should be a red, red flag. And then the concept of building a gym out, you know, am I going to have a shower at this gym? Then I got to build that too. Like right now I got a brand new bathroom with a shower. I got great parking. Uh, you know, I got reasonable rent. So it's like really in the, in the end of things, does it make sense to, even if I could afford a brand new gym and build it out right now at that moment, I'm going massively into debt if I do something Mm -hmm. like that. So, and right now I'm, I'm, I'm able to like put a little bit of, you know, a little bit of money away. So why, why wouldn't I just keep going right now, as opposed to moving too far ahead when I don't think that the move is right. It just doesn't yeah. make, it, it's not, at, at this point, it's not in the cards to have such a big risk when what, you know, if I just jump at something blindly and go into crazy debt, you know, you, in terms of your everyday quality of life, you're probably going to be losing sleep. You're going to be uh, stressing out and the, your cortisol levels are going to be crazy. It's just not worth it in the end, you know? Yeah. There's this awesome book that my wife and I just read called The Millionaire Next Door. It's actually a really old book. It's getting close to, I think, 20 years old, but basically what it is, is these guys studied a whole bunch of millionaires to try to figure out how did they get rich, right? And what is it about these people? And I I think they all kind of thought it was going to be a bunch of like Rolex wearing Ferrari driving lunatics, right? But actually it was just a lot of normal people living in normal houses who got super rich. And the way they did it was they just did a return on investment analysis on everything and they didn't spend stupid money on stupid things they didn't need and they made a point of saving as much as they could like there was no rocket science to it they weren't all elon musk or jeff bezos like these were just ordinary rational people who just made sure that they they spent what they had intelligently there's this thing called the hedonic treadmill you've probably heard about this where society pressures us to really i mean we are a consumerist society society pressures us to always be buying the biggest and next thing right yeah so if i've got a house and you know maybe i get a pay raise and i I have an extra kid the first thing i'm thinking is i gotta buy that new house i gotta buy a bigger house a better house i gotta have more space i gotta make sure that all my relatives are impressed by the quality of my house Um, but the problem is what your relatives don't know is you're dramatically overextending yourself by doing that you're paying for property you don't need and you can't afford and because of that you're not actually saving and investing any money so uh you know a lot of people make poor return on investment decisions like this and like you said buying a new car is a great example oh yeah buying buying a new car i mean at least 
property generally appreciates. Buying a new car is like the worst investment that you can make. Uh, <laughs> Literally. So I, I am it devalues so far. Yeah, I am constantly shocked by people who like buy a new car every two or three years. I mean, I just I just don't see it. I don't get it. Um, but in jujitsu, yeah, it's it's very much the same thing. Like I think that it the quickest way that you can just get better almost overnight is learn to do a return on investment calculation on everything. Just Whenever you're doing literally anything, make a point of asking yourself, what could go wrong here? What do I stand to gain out of this? And is the juice worth the squeeze? Like, is is there enough return on investment that I am willing to take this chance? Because um, that's so much of being frugal and being and being safe and protecting yourself is about not taking stupid risks. Like, if, if you spar with someone who's really high level, you'll know that a lot of the time it feels like there's just nothing there. There's no opportunity that is open that you can take. And it's because these people are just really good at shoring up their holes. They do return on investment calculations on everything. They know if they reach their hand forward and they're not blocking you, you're going to grab it. So they just don't do that, right? They they keep in good alignment yeah. all of the time Maybe and they less. protect their levers. So really, that's just a, a really quick hack that you can use to immediately supercharge your game. Yeah, I hate people who buy cars all the time. I don't get it. I don't, I don't mind when they buy cars. <laughs> I was getting that. I don't mind when they buy cars all the time. Where, where it really gets me is where they're continually posting these like hashtag blessed videos of themselves with their new cars on social media. <laughs> yeah. It was Jesus who got me my yeah. new car. Um, yeah. For, for those who don't know, we are making a little bit of fun of Matt's instructor, Rob Bernacki. Who he doesn't is say a, blessed, does he? No, I'm just, I'm just uh, messing with him. He's a, a very much a car enthusiast. I mean, I get it if like that's one of your passions. I mean... A lot of people would say that we're stupid for spending as much time and money as we do on jujitsu. If you really love cars, then go for it. But like just in my head, I don't personally enjoy cars. I just want to get from point A to point B and not have the thing break down on me. Same way. So I only get excited if I'm actually buying a car, which is like once every decade or I get terrified when I'm buying a car because I'm like just the sheer amount of money that you have to spend. It's. Yeah. So anyway, I, th- I think it's more of a, like for Rob, he can buy cars because he's getting quite successful and quite because renowned. we're driving all of these people yes. to his to his academy. Yes, I, I am. I am claiming I'm laying claim that at least 50 percent of his success comes from this podcast. So if you and I'm also demanding so, royalties. That's exactly. So if you ask me, he should give us 50 percent of his profits. It's just I'll, I'll just take his car. I mean, personally, <laughs> if he wants to math. just give me the car, that's also fine. I think it's people who aren't doing successfully when they want to buy status items yeah. like bigger houses or, uh, you know, they want to upgrade their business or get that brand new car. That's that's where you run into problems. If you're someone who's successful and you, you know, you you work hard and now you want to enjoy yeah. the fruits of your labor, it makes sense to go buy. Yeah, it's car. like a if grail object. Like, you can afford it without sacrificing your your, yeah, your financial goals. You. Then that's not such a big thing. It's more when you're going to be like running yourself into the ground, stressing your family, uh, you know, preventing yourself from saving in the future. That's where you got to be really careful about spending. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, back to back to jujitsu, like I, it's it's actually real common in the highest levels where you'll see guys um you know like say it's a black belt division it's a 10 minute match you're gonna see guys that aren't always super aggressive like the match could start slow and there's a feeling out process and nobody's willing to take any risks right away they want to kill a little bit of time warm up a little bit to each other and then they start to take little risks here and there mm-hmm. and then and then it can be a counterfighting game or maybe someone just takes the initiative and starts blitzing mm-hmm. i mean it could happen right out of the gate someone could just go blitz blitz for the whole match 
and if they do, they have incredible conditioning, right? Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of the veterans, a lot of the seasoned competitors pace themselves and they don't offer too much at first because they know that it's going to be a back and forth battle at that level. Well, they that's know, they know they're probably not going to blitz and then get a breakthrough that it's going yeah. to be a war of attrition, especially these 10 minute matches. And that's such an important thing to understand is while you are scouting opportunities on your opponent, he is also scouting opportunities on you. So part of identifying and exploiting opportunities is managing to do this while simultaneously not leaving any open opportunities on yourself. That's where jujitsu gets actually really hard. And I think that more experienced people kind of take for granted how hard it is. I mean, you've basically got like a human being who is using not just their hands, but all four of their limbs plus their head to fight against another human being that is doing the same. It's like two octopuses fighting or octopi fighting. And you have to keep track of where every limb is at every time, <laughs> because if you lose track of one thing, you're dead, right? Yeah. So it, it's a very, very complex art. Uh, and that's a big part of succeeding at, at when you're fighting someone who's very experienced is you need to scout their weaknesses while simultaneously not exposing any of your own. So that's kind of the, the flip side of this ROI thing is uh, not just identifying when to attack your opponent, but also how to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. yep, exciting. You know, speaking of ROI, something that is timely in the news right now that we might, oh, by the way, ROI stands for return on investment, what we were talking about earlier, for basically. Rubes. Yeah, but, uh, but something that is actually timely is there was this dude, uh, this Russian dude recently who just paralyzed himself doing a flying arm bar oh, god yeah i yeah. think i think that's a good thing to bring up right now yeah actually. i think everyone has probably at least become aware of this and it was only it was not that long ago that josh hinger concussed himself also doing a flying arm bar like yeah. hey flying stuff i'm not going to say it doesn't work but do a risk versus reward analysis on this stuff please like that is it really worth that kind of potential liability to yourself for a move that frankly is generally low percentage i could be wrong the match you're talking about with Josh Hinger and Mateus Denise, I think that flying attack was in like the last 20 seconds. So maybe something. he was just trying to close the books on this thing. And But they were even scored. And then, then it was really dumb. I think he got his guard passed after that. Yeah. So it's like, well, he was knocked out. He could presumably, have gone to or a concussed. draw or a ref's decision if he had just waited. You yeah. Know? You, you want to talk about opportunities. The best opportunity is your opponent concusses himself and knocks himself out and you win. <laughs> so, I mean, if you want to actually win a fight, I suggest not paralyzing yourself during the match. Uh, That's right. I used to go for a lot of, uh, I, I never went for a lot of flying arm bars, but I did a lot of guard jumping. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's scary, man. It like, is like, not, I'm not so scared about guard jumping. I'm scared about getting someone jumping on me. Yeah. You know, and having my leg in the wrong place. And of course, going for flying arm bars. It's like a lot of the time you're going upside down and it mm -hmm. just, that video is just so bad. I, I couldn't watch it. I mean, you didn't I watch it. No, I saw what I it was. It. I saw the description and I thought I can live my life without ever seeing this. I'll say this. It's even worse than what you would imagine. And oh, I God. wish I never saw it. Oh man. It okay. So, so I made the right call. Let's pull it up right now. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I mean, I feel terrible, but this is one of those things that you need to be mindful of. Like you never want to trade your alignment for momentum. <laughs> the problem with moves with these flying moves, like jumping guard and all of this is you're basically you're using your own body as a projectile, right? You are basically throwing away alignment and hoping that the momentum that you get by launching yourself is going to be more valuable than alignment. The problem with doing this is once you're in the air, your opponent 
kind of dictates what happens to you, right? I mean, if I'm if I am like jumping in the air and I latch on to Matt and he decides that he just wants to spike me on the head, or if he doesn't want to do I that, just fall. Yeah, or if he doesn't want to do that and he just falls and he spikes me on my head, I mean, that's that's it, right? This so my fault. <laughs> yeah. So it's this is a situation where this is a, a risk versus reward analysis that you really need to think about. And I I kind of actually think that like I would never at this point suggest that someone use a flying move, even a guard jump, just because even if it might technically work, the risk versus reward for you is so in the negative that I just can't see it. I I think that even if, even in situations where it's like the clock is ticking down, like I think that it's just so dangerous that you probably don't want to go there. Yeah. And even, even risk versus reward aside, I mean, strategically speaking, let's say I come out of the gate and I flying armbar someone in 10 seconds and it works. To me, it doesn't even prove that I'm the better grappler. No, like, it's like a flash KO in the UFC, exactly. right? Exactly. Like if, it can happen. Does it necessarily mean that I'm better or or that my game's better? Mm-hmm. If I win, it certainly doesn't show me what I should work on. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like if I have a long drawn out battle with someone and I narrowly win uh, and I make a lot of mistakes, but then I can climb back, I'm going to gain a lot more from that match when, when I uh, upon reflection as opposed to like, me and buddy shake hands and then I just go and I get a flying arm bar right away. It's like, well, what did I learn? I learned I should do more flying arm bars. <laughs> it's a false positive, right? Yeah. Unfortunately. And then my chances of par- paraly- getting paralyzed go up and up and up or, or getting concussed. I, I haven't seen a straight up paralyzation like that ever. I don't think I, I don't think they actually happen too often with flying arm bars, but it can happen. Yeah. But, but injuries, terrifying. yeah, injuries do happen a lot off of flying techniques yeah. or jumping techniques. Or hurting right? your back or yeah, whatever. Yeah, and if you don't hurt yourself, you might hurt your opponent, right? It's just, it's so unpredictable because when you basically catapult yourself into the air, your ability to manage alignment basically goes out the door, right? Yeah. You, you may go flying in directions that you did not predict. Yeah, uncontrolled falling body weight. Yep, not a good thing. Not good for risk first reward. Yep. Cool. Well, I think that was pretty comprehensive. Matt, any other closing arguments? No. Mm. Now that you guys know about risk first reward, start using it. Yeah, please be a little bit careful. In so, the real world as well. Yeah, in the real world as well. When you're crossing the street, when you're... If you're driving and you think you need to text someone, don't do it. Or or not just that, but even if just someone says something that pisses you off and, you know, before you open your mouth, just bite your tongue and think like, what are the ramifications of this going to be? You know, I might, it might feel good in the moment, but like, what is the, what is the blowback going to be in the long term? Most arguments and fights are completely preventable and achieve nothing. So a large part of avoiding those bad situations is just asking yourself, what is the risk here and what is the reward? Yeah. Cool. So today, in terms of the mental models we discussed, we talked about core mechanics in the context of jujitsu. Really, the three big mechanical items to keep on top of are levers, wedges, and frames. In the context of opportunities, really, the opportunity you are trying to create is to grab a lever from your opponent while simultaneously not letting him or her grab a lever on you. We talked about how grips dictate position. Uh, This is, you know, you're not going to be able to actually grab a lever unless you can dominate the grip fight. So if you are letting your opponent get grips on you, then your ability to actually obtain a lever and therefore to get an opportunity is going to be greatly reduced. 
We talked about training with purpose. When you go into a sparring session or a competition, always make sure that you have an idea in mind of what you want to do and also a plan for how to get things back on track if things don't go the way that you expected. We talked about win conditions. In any sort of game or competition, always make sure you understand at a very deep level how is this thing going to be scored and how is victory actually defined? Because a lot of the time, you can beat someone who might otherwise be considered better than you just through a better understanding of the rules. Mm-hmm. We talked, um, we didn't specifically name it, but we talked about Kaizen. This is basically the art of continuous improvement. The idea is you always want to be looking at what you did and analyzing how you could do things better and then applying those learnings for next time. Uh, that's a very microscopic thing as well. You know, you can do that right down to individual training sessions or individual roles. Just make sure in your head, you're kind of mentally revisiting what you did and asking yourself, how could I have made this more effective? We talked about predictable responses. A big part of exploiting opportunities is understanding that when you take an action, a lot of the time there are predictable reactions that will come from your opponent. We talked about technique chaining, the idea that a lot of the time your first attack is not going to work and real success comes from applying multiple attacks in succession without a break. And we talked about return on investment, meaning risk versus reward analysis. Before you take any action on or off the mats, always make sure you understand what the risk is and what the reward is possibly could be and what the odds are of that reward actually materializing. So we talked a lot about win conditions on this episode, but we actually got an interesting email on this topic. And this was the email that inspired me to sort of add this to our vocabulary. So we received this from a listener. I wanted to get your thoughts on concerning the sport versus self-defense jujitsu business. While in principle, I agree with what's been stated across several episodes that there's not a technical difference between sport and self-defense, i.e. I don't agree with the idea that one technique is for sport and another is for self-defense, I do think that it is possible to train BJJ with a sport or a self-defense mentality. As a former law enforcement officer who has used jiu-jitsu in the performance of my duties, I did personally experience something that I find is not often addressed in BJJ schools, win conditions. A win condition for a BJJ match is rarely like a win condition for the very wide range of potentially violent situations that can be faced in a self-defense situation. True. Yeah, this is actually very important to think about. For contrast, there is a wide spectrum of actions that can be encompassed by the word violence, and often people are not very good about making sure that they're talking about the same kinds of violence when talking about self-defense. For some, particularly on the hard-ass combatives end of the spectrum, there seem to be a lot of people who are preparing for a fight to the death with an entire gang or a serial killer or some other highly unlikely situation. If we consider the difference between a drunk man who has a history of domestic violence, a brawl at a local bar, an angry parent at a soccer game, a mentally disturbed individual beating up his mother at a grocery store, a bank robber, a riot, a kidnapper, or a crackhead freaking out at the entrance of an emergency room, these are all very different slices of violence that all have different win conditions. Sometimes a win condition might just be survive long enough for the cops or backup to arrive. Or it might be don't get knocked out and get away. Or it might be don't let them take your gun. In both training BJJ and in training with law enforcement officers, I found that the needs of both communities share some significant overlap in areas, but simultaneously have large gaps between them and others. Hmm. 
I was once charged by a guy who had been fleeing a home invasion. He surprised me and essentially double-legged me before I could sprawl, and we fell backwards with him and my guard. I scissor-swept him. That's awesome. You <laughs> and, must be so proud. Yeah. You did it. <laughs> yeah. You, you have hit one scissor-sweep more than I have ever hit in my entire life. Unlocked. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I never I get that. I was going to say unlocked trophy. Yeah. Use jujitsu in real life. Yeah. I scissor I scissor swept him and then sat in mount controlling him until my backup arrived. Consider how the wind condition would have shifted had he pulled a knife out of his pocket. I would have needed to or shift bit your dick. Yeah. <laughs> Depends how, how much meth the guy's done. I would have needed to shift from simply <laughs> containing him to controlling the weapon hand. I would have had to go, uh, go from a wind condition of maintain a dominant position to control the weapon hand and don't get stabbed. Disengaging and shifting to deadly force might also have been on wind condition at that point. This kind of focus shift or win condition shift is not a training element that I've yet to experience in any BJJ school. The point being is that one way a differentiation between sport and self-defense BJJ could be articulated would be to train not only for submissions as a win condition, but to have pressure-based competitive sparring in BJJ schools that also simulated other win conditions. Yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah I, I like this a lot. A simple one that could in, that we could include right away would be to have the attacker be given a win condition of strike your opponent in the face x number of times while the defender would be given a win condition of don't get hit in the face and disengage from your attacker entirely returning to your feet is just one small slice of the very vast spectrum of what can be meant by the word violence however i would also it would also be a good start towards utilizing bjj training in a more robust way to prepare students for a wider ver- variation of self-defense situations i'm sure you guys can come up with other examples you both give me a lot to think about and have helped improve my bjj training and strategy keep up the good work so long email but a super interesting email and i wanted to make a point of reading that and also thanking the listener because we had in the past talked about rule sets but we didn't really have a kind of a term for this but win conditions is a super critical thing to think about as i I think we've established in this episode Um, and even within the context of jujitsu there are so many different rule sets and there are so many different scenarios um, as to what you may or may not be trying to achieve you know we talked actually in the last episode about how your win conditions in training are probably going to be different from your win conditions in competition because in training you you want to encourage yourself to learn new techniques and to experiment and also to not kill your training partner whereas in competition you want to focus on your a game so being deliberate about understanding win conditions is something that i i think i need to start thinking about more consciously across the board not just on the mats but also off them you know whenever you are encountering a new challenge maybe one of the smartest things to do is to first ask yourself what are the win conditions for the situation because i think sometimes how you define victory might be different from what you thought it would be before you really put the the mental effort into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's a really great email. And of course, jujitsu will change depending on the wind condition, the scenario. Um, you know, in in a jujitsu situation, you can play all types of open guards and mm-hmm. things like that. But in a self defense situation, you probably want to close the distance and hold your partner close so that they can't strike you or land significant damage from the bottom, you know? So it could it could totally change. I find, I think sport jiu-jitsu, a lot of it is going to be a lot of framing and making space and establishing grips, which still happens in real situations. But in a real situation, it's going to be more like, you know, hold them close so they can't hit you, pin them against the ground, pin them, <clears throat> pin them against the wall, you know? If they have a weapon, isolate the weapon hand. I think that's like gold. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Or if they have... You know, if they have uh, a knife, create distance, right? Yeah. And and create 
barriers that separate you from them, essentially giving you time to escape. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've been talking to a lot of people about this thing recently because we we talked about this, how there's kind of conflicting information about what to do if someone comes at you with a knife. And uh, after talking to some people who actually understand this stuff, uh, I've kind of come to the conclusion that it it's not a simple answer like it totally depends when you're far enough when you're far away the wind condition is maybe to make space when you're close to the point where you can't reasonably disentangle then the wind condition might be to get closer like it's it's not an easy answer and i think the problem with a lot of these self-defense scenarios is people don't actually really know what the wind conditions are and they're so volatile like they they change dramatically depending on how many people there are what weapons are in play whether you're close or far away like there's just so many variables and something i'd actually like to do at some point is get someone on the show who actually understands the stuff because it would be good to maybe get some objective and and accurate information in front of people because so much of what we see in in the self-defense sector it's really unprovable or contradictory uh, you know and it's, it's generally untested you know it's one thing for someone to put on like a pair of camo pants and a flak jacket and claim that they're a combatives instructor and drill a whole bunch of knife defenses but this stuff is hard to test in the wild right and so I, w- I would like to actually get a person on here who understands that stuff that can maybe explain Mm-hmm. maybe we'll get that uh, brontosaurus rory on here yeah what does he know i don't know he claims that he's a, a corrections officer yeah. i don't know what that means though what is he correcting he he uh is a corrections officer at a place commonly known as camp cuddles <laughs> he said every sunday they do sunday brunch i'm serious <laughs> This is amazing. Yeah. For those who don't know. Can I get locked up? That sounds pretty sweet. (laughs) For those who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about Rory Van Vliet, one of Matt's buddies, uh, trains under. Hey, don't say that. Yeah, sorry. He's not one of your buddies. He's one one of Matt's arch rivals, uh, trains under Island top team. Um, He's relevant because he's uh, kind of one of the the co-creators of BJJConcepts.net, Rob's Academy. And also his new guard retention instructional just came out. I believe it's available. Uh, It's available on the app now too, on the grapple arts app if you want to go catch that with stefan yeah uh yeah yeah i haven't looked at it yet i'm sure it's pretty good but i did see some highlights on um on stefan's uh facebook and it was awesome to see him arguing with all of these karate black belts about whether arm drags work <laughs> yes that was funny that, people are so stupid yeah th- by the way arm drag would totally work yeah yeah so there was like a teaser video of rory doing an arm drag for self-defense that was posted on uh, one of stefan's facebook pages and there were all of these just like ridiculous 30 year old karate or sorry 30 years of experience karate veterans who are on there talking about how like i don't know what this arm drag thing is but this would never work in a real fight i would just hit you why why, what what about the other arm your other arm could have a knife (laughs) it's like so are we just going to throw out the last like 25 years of ufc jujitsu knowledge that we've acquired because some karate guy in the internet thinks that arm drags don't work i have 30 years experience how dare you so basically he's got one year of experience 30 times yeah yeah. (laughs) My martial art is no touch. It's too dangerous. We can't actually touch. Oh, God. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, that was a good chat. Hope you found this useful. As always, I mean, as you got the 
the gist of it here. This podcast is heavily inspired by listener feedback. So if you have any ideas that you want to share or any questions to ask, please just do send them along to us. We love to receive them and we're happy to help out. If you want to support us, you can go to bjjmentalmodels.com. That's our online database where we list and document all of the mental models we've discussed here. You can also go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash store. That's our online store where you can pick up our gi patches and our t-shirts. Anything you buy there directly helps support the show. So we really do appreciate that support. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash join, which is where you can go to join our mailing list. We send a lot more information on there in addition to and beyond what we discuss on the show and of course if you want to reach out to us or just see what we're up to you can catch us on facebook and instagram again thanks for another good one matt thank you thank you steve this was an opportunity that i am glad we exploited yeah i got nothing else just ended there (laughs) this is this is getting awkward okay bye guys bye